If you would, please turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, my aim this morning really is to just give you some precious, three precious truths, three precious realities. This year we've preached on a number of things, we've done some topical things such as the providence of God, we've talked about joy, series of sermons on, the, on joy as well. We've also worked through a series of books, we've worked through the book of Jonah, the most recent one. Prior to that, during the summer, we've gone through the book of Psalms, not all of them, but several of them, and prior to that, we did the book of Philippians. And so, this is, I guess, to put it in one way, is to sort of condense some of the things that we've learned in those books into one sermon, which I'll admit, when I first thought about it, I thought it was kind of quite an impossible task. So I want to give you some, some precious realities that I hope that you will consider and that the Lord will press upon you. Not themes. Themes are helpful. Themes help us to sort of condense what one particular book might say in a kind of a, in a succinct manner. But realities, I like the word reality because themes, it communicates something that themes don't. Themes is something you take with you. Themes is something that you take that uh, helps to sort of capture and summarize something you learn in a particular book, for example, but realities, reality is real, we live in reality, we live and move and have our being because Christ has given us life and breath and because we have the Holy Spirit who compels us and works in us to, the, to work our salvation to the glory of God. And realities communicate to us that these are truths to live by. And so, we're going to start where we last left off with uh, and walking through several books this year, and that is the book of Jonah. So Jonah, chapter 1, and sort of making our way through different places in the book of Jonah for this first point. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then verse 7, and the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Let me pray. Lord, this is your word, not man's word, certainly not my word, but this is your word. This is living and active, sharper than two, and any two-edged sword. And this sword can cut down deep into our very hearts. And as we just sang a moment ago, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your divinely inspired word and that you would drive 
precious truths, precious realities into our hearts, especially as we think about the new year that is just around the corner. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, coming from the book of Jonah, absolute power and great compassion in the person of God. And this really has different ways that it should affect us and how we consider the character of the Lord. So as you remember, Jonah, called by God to preach against the city of Nineveh for their evil, runs in the opposite direction, and God creates a powerful storm in the middle of the sea that threatens the lives of Jonah and the sailors. In order to get Jonah to go back to Nineveh, Nineveh, that great city that God says, the great city later in verse chapter 4 tells us 120,000 persons who do not know the left hand from the right, which I take to mean as a reference to children, very young children who literally do not know the left hand from the right. And if there's 120,000 persons, children in the city of Nineveh, then how much more adults will there be? It's a great city, a vast city, even had their own king. But that is not essentially the reason why it captures the attention of God. It captures the attention of God because of their great sin. Because when you have such a high concentration of sinners in one particular region or location, well, it gives birth to a lot of sin. And God means to do something about their sin. And it's for this reason that Jonah is called to go and preach against the city of Nineveh. Unless we think that the Lord is a God of idle threats, the book of Jonah actually goes to great lengths to show us that God, that this is a powerful God, that this is not a God to take casually. Right, it tells us that after Jonah ran away and got on the ship, it was the Lord who hurled a great wind upon the sea and created the storm. It was the Lord that caused the fish to swallow up Jonah in the middle of the sea. It was God who spoke to the fish to vomit out Jonah. Later on, it was God who called the plant into being and then called a worm to devour the plant. And then it was God who then called the scorching east wind to come about. It's not a God of idle threats. He says what he means and he means what he says. Why we're not always like that. Right, son, don't take the cookie. Don't take the cookie from the jar or you will be disciplined. Don't take it. Oh, you took it. Great. That's all right. Just don't do it again and I will discipline you, right? I certainly have done that before. We're not always consistent with our word either because we're afraid to or sometimes we're just too lazy. But God is not a person of idle threats. He's in control of all things from the plants to the weather and even directing the lives of men in whichever way he pleases. This is certainly a God of great power. And so when the people of Nineveh hear the word of the Lord through the prophet of Jonah, through the prophet Jonah, it is right that they should take the word seriously. This is a powerful God, but there's something else as this book teaches us, and that's concerning the character of God. In Jonah 4, verse 2, the prophet Jonah says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you, God, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
throughout this whole ordeal, throughout this whole narrative, notice that Jonah is never surprised by what happens to him from the disaster in the sea to his being swallowed up by the fish. He's never surprised. Why is that? He's never surprised because he knows that this God is powerful. He knows that this God can do whatever he pleases. And he knows that the reason for his disasters is because of his own sin. In fact, when he's in the belly of the fish and he's praying to God, which I think is the prayer of repentance and the plea before the Lord, he even says that it was, not, that it was God who cast him in the waters. Even though, right, it was the men who tossed him overboard. No, Jonah says God is the one who cast him into the sea. But Jonah is spared. And whether it's a surprise to him or not, I don't know. But it certainly should not be a surprise to us that God should spare the disobedient prophets. And this is the other thing that we know about God. Something that Jonah affirms in chapter 4, verse 2. Something that the Scriptures affirm elsewhere, many places in the Scriptures. In Exodus 34, when Moses desired to see the glory of God, God responds. And it says in Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God declared himself to be a God who was compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. And this is the same God of the book of Jonah, the same God who has absolute power and authority over all things, and in that power intends to bring judgment upon the sins and transgressions and the iniquity on the city of Nineveh, he also shows himself to be a God of great mercy and compassion and great grace. And it is for this reason that Nineveh is not swept up under the judgment and the wrath of God. And in this way, we also see that God's grace is a perpetual means of grace. A slight change here, if you're following along in the bulletin, point one, verse, or subpoint C, might say transformative grace, or if I actually made a slight change to that, it should be perpetual means of grace. So Jonah preaches in Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. I won't read all the passages to you, but it reaches the king of Nineveh, and he proclaims a fast, a citywide fast. Nobody is allowed to eat or drink anything, not even the animals, in the hopes that God may perhaps turn and relent from the impending disaster that is coming upon them. God did not spare the city of Nineveh because of their own righteousness. God did not spare the city of Nineveh because they offered a bunch of great enlarged and extravagant offerings to the Lord, God did not spare the city of Nineveh because he's not a God of his word. It's not because on a whim. It's not because God is a God of idle threats. God spared the city of Nineveh because he is a gracious God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love to those who turn to him in faith and repentance. 
So then just as God could not ignore such a high concentration of sin, he could also not ignore such a high concentration of repentance. The scriptures tell us that a broken and contrite heart the Lord will never turn away. The Lord Jesus, because he is God and because he is gracious and compassionate, also says that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What we see in the book of Jonah is the absolute power and authority of God, but also his grace and compassion, which is, to me, is astounding that those, these two things come together so well and so harmoniously. Well, you've heard power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I could not disagree with that more. Absolute power doesn't corrupt people absolutely. Absolute power only reveals one's corruption. It's not that the person was innocent before they gained this power. No, it is because the sinful human heart is corrupted. And when that person receives unchecked power and unchecked authority, it reveals one's corruption. Even if it was the most kind person you've ever met should receive such unchecked power and authority, we should still be afraid. Because the Bible tells us that sin lurks in every single human heart. But what we see about God and what we learn about Christ, what we see that is consistent in the Gospels, is that the power of God reveals the character of God. And what we see about the character of God is that he is gracious and compassionate. I mean, just think about Christ, who had all the authority, who had all the power, and he did not come into the world in order to make slaves of men, but instead he came into the world, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and in that power even allowed man to crucify him to a cross. And we see that the power of God reveals the character of God and that God, that the Lord Jesus himself is not a dictator or a tyrant, but he is, a, he is full of grace and compassion, that in that power he came into the world to die on the cross for the sins of his people. How has this year been for you? I wonder how you might answer that question. What has this year been like? Have you been able to look back this life, this, this past year, and if you haven't, something to consider. Look back to this past year. What has it been like? And what are the evidences of the gracious and compassionate character of God? How's it been displayed in your life throughout this year? And right, you, must, you might feel like, you know, I haven't really seen the grace and compassion of the Lord in my life, but feeling isn't always reality, is it? It does require an intentional effort to look back the rest of this past year and see how good the Lord has been to us. Because the one thing that the Scriptures tell us with absolute certainty, is that God is full of grace and compassion, especially towards his people. 
And even if your year has been an incredibly difficult year, it does not mean that the Lord has cared for you less. What a means of grace might it be to your life if you took the time often to reflect on how good the Lord has been and what way has He provided. We might find ourselves less anxious, less worried, less doubtful, less angry perhaps, more confident as we come into a, into a new year. To reflect on the character of God and to see how in His graciousness He's been good to us. Even as a church, He certainly has been incredibly, incredibly good to us. The striking reality that we see in the book of Jonah, that the absolute power and the grace of God are both in the person of God and the person of Christ. It reveals that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Second, turning then our attention to the book of Psalms and some of the Psalms that we've worked through this summer, one reality that we see in the Psalms that we've worked through in the summer is that God is righteous. And this has profound implications for how God relates to his people. Psalm 9, verse 7 tells us, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. God is righteous. This carries a sense of conforming to a standard, namely his righteous standard. This also helps us to understand God's requiring of us to be righteous, which is our conformity to his standard. That is what God requires of us. And his righteousness also means that he distributes justice according to his standard of righteousness. And that his righteousness is revealed in his acts of justice. So when God means to distribute his wrath and judgment towards the wicked city of Nineveh, he does so because in his character he is righteous, and the Ninevites are not conforming to his standard of righteousness. Righteousness and justice are intrinsic to the very character of God. And every act of justice ultimately reveals the character of God. And because it is intrinsic to his character, God abominates every act of injustice. Now, one of the most pressing truths that the Bible teaches us from beginning to end, one of the most stark truths that the Bible teaches us is that nobody conforms to this righteous standard of God. As Romans chapter 3 affirms, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one. But as we think back to the book of Jonah, Jonah reminds us of the great compassion and mercy of God which we then most vividly see in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, because no one is righteous, and no, because God is righteous, his righteousness demands that he do something about our unrighteousness, but in his grace and compassion, he does so in a way that is most shocking and surprising. 
and that is through Christ. In Romans 3.21, we see how God has answered the problem of our unrighteousness. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Later, in that same chapter, I will say that this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God shows himself to be righteous, conforming to his own standard of righteousness by dealing effectively with our unrighteousness, by placing our unrighteousness on the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. So that anyone who places their faith upon Jesus then receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins and are restored into a special and right relationship with God. When the sinner is justified by God through faith in Christ, it places that person in special relationship with God. What we see in many of the Psalms is God's care for the righteous. Many of the psalms are psalms or their prayers of a righteous man made to a righteous God. It comes from a person who knows God, or rather is known by God. And what the psalmist shows through many of his prayers, through many of his psalms, is that he knows that God is righteous. And that God cares for the righteous. Now, the psalmist knew this long before the birth of Christ. How much more should we know this? After having received the justification of God through faith in Jesus Christ, when you know that you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ because you believe in him and you strive to live in a manner that is consistent with God's righteousness, though not perfectly, you have a confidence You have a God-given confidence. A confidence that you have as a sinner who has been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. A confidence that says that God cares for his people. God cares for the righteous. If God took great pains and went through such lengths to make you righteous through his Son, how then can we not expect for God to continue to take care of his righteous people? Would you ever expect a builder, to build his own house from the bottom up and not continue to take care of the house that he built? Of course not. Would you ever expect someone to pay a great price for something of great value and not take care of that thing that he's purchased? Of course not. And those who would not and do not take care of what of their prized possession, we consider them foolish to spend so much time and energy in that thing in the first place. Because God has taken great lengths in his righteousness to 
make righteous the sinner through faith in Christ, we can expect that God will continue to care for the righteous. But in that special relationship, there's something else that we've talked at length before I intend to remind you of is that, and that is that in this special relationship between the righteous God and the sinner made righteous, is that there is also a testing of the righteous. In Psalm 11, verse 5, it tells us that the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. There's a contrast made in that passage between those who are righteous and those who are not, that God abominates, that God hates the wicked, but on the other hand, God actually tests the righteous, which is a form of his love. And the purpose of God's testing the righteous is always in order to strengthen their faith in the Lord. When you have a piece of metal that you seek to fashion into a blade, for example, it takes great work. You have to heat that metal in order to make it malleable so that you can hammer it over and over and over again to give it shape. And then you have to temper the metal, which is the process of heating the metal just under critical point, and then letting it air cool, and the process repeated several times in order to harden the metal. And the metalsmith has to be aware of certain defects because if there are defects in the metal, and he's seeking to fashion it into a blade, for example, well then, the metal is compromised and it might break upon impact. God means to test the faith of his people, the metal of your faith and mine. And he means to remove all the defects that are revealed in this process of forging and tempering in order that he might present the metal of your faith as spotless and perfected. There are many things that we can certainly learn through one another, that we can learn through books, that we can learn through conferences, but there are many things that we will never learn unless we go through the crucible of trial and affliction. There are some lessons that we will never learn until our faith is tried. But the aim, always, without exception, is to make you more Christ-like. The aim is always to help you grow in more righteousness. And this is how God cares for the righteous. It is right that God cares for his righteous people, and it is also right that God also make them more righteous, even if it means through the testing of their faith. The Puritan Thomas Broth Boston, his book, The Crook and the Lot, and if you've been following the podcast, I've been reading through this book this month, and it's a book about trials and afflictions, and in this book, Thomas Boston writes, if one shut not his own eyes, but be willing to understand he may easily perceive the general design thereof to be, that is the design of trials, to be to wean him from this world and move him to seek and take up his heart's rest in God. This is God's aim in the testing of our faith. As trying as it might be, 
as hard as it might be, God's aim is for you to take your rest up in Him. Not in your own hands and what your hands can produce, not in your own wisdom, not in secular wisdom. People are helpful in encouraging you and admonishing you and exhorting you, yes, but ultimately God's aim is to help you to take your rest up in Him because God cares for you. And God means to make you more like Jesus Christ. That God is righteous and He deals righteously with His people. And it might be shocking to us that that relationship may not always play out in the way that we expect. He certainly cares, He certainly loves His people, He certainly provides for His people, but sometimes God's love is His taking you through trial in order for you to learn or to relearn what it means to trust and cast yourself upon the Lord. Third and lastly, the gospel is a transformative treasure. And this comes from the book of Philippians that we've covered earlier in the year. Philippians 3.7, the Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Many people consider the book of Philippians to be a book about joy. And that is certainly true. There is a lot of joy in the book. There's a lot of commands to have joy in the Lord. But it's not just about joy. I think the book of Philippians is also a book that concerns honor. It tells us about what is honorable. I think it compels us to think about what we might consider to be honorable. And what are those things? What might those things be that we might consider honorable to be honorable or consider ourselves to be in a position of honor based on what we possess, based on what we do, based on our position in society or in our jobs, based on who you know or or, or who knows you? But the book of Philippians teaches us to set our minds on what is honorable according to God. And the things that you and I might consider to be honorable or worthy of honor, the Apostle Paul would probably say it's vain, that it is garbage. What we learn from the book of Philippians is that if honor is determined by what you possess, then the most honorable people in the world are those who possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who essentially possess Christ. Christ is the greatest possession. If honor is determined by status, then the most honorable people, according to the Bible, are those who are declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ and are considered sons and daughters of God. Those are the most honorable. The difference between the Christian, and every other person on the planet, whether they're atheists or following some other kind of religion, the difference between the Christian and everybody else is that the Christian treasures and prizes Jesus Christ above all things. And the book of Philippians teaches us that this is honorable. Earlier in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says these famous words, known to many of you, I'm sure, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
These are the words coming from a man who is possessed by Christ. If you ever had an idea, something that you thought was a great idea, excellent idea, something you keep thinking about all day long, that you think about its execution, uh, the results of this idea, you might not be able to sleep because you have this idea. It's not so much that you possess this idea, it's more that the idea has sort of come to possess you. This is what the life of Paul was. He was possessed by Christ. It's for this reason that one commentator writes, life, both physical and spiritual, is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ in the sense that everything that Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. Paul views his life in time as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. When you experience the transformative grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you recognize your desperate need for the righteousness of Christ, you then value the great treasure that is Christ. Christ becomes your greatest possession. It's not so much that you possess Christ, it's that Christ then possesses you. That your life is summed up in Christ, that your life is possessed by Christ, that your life is determined and dictated by Christ. And the thing about treasuring Christ is that the person who treasures Christ as the greatest prize of his life is gradually transformed by that prize. And it is this transformation that leads us to live lives that are honorable according to the Lord and the Scriptures. In Philippians 2, 19-29, I won't read all the passage to you, but in it we have the example of two men. Paul puts before us two men, two individuals, two servants of the church, two saints, who are examples of what the honorable life is like. They're examples of the lives of those who possess or are possessed by Christ. Timothy and his concern for the welfare of the church and interested in the things of Christ and who served along with the Apostle Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also puts forward Epaphroditus, fellow worker, fellow soldier, a messenger, a minister to my need, who left the city of Philippi with a care package to deliver to the Apostle Paul. And that this, Paul considered to be, in this passage, he says that this is a work of Christ. And so what does this transformation look like? What does the life of a person who is possessed by Christ and treasures Christ above all things look like? You look to these, the lives of these two men who are led ultimately by the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us what this life is like, where it tells us in Mark 10.45 that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The honorable person seeks not to be served, but to spend himself in the service of others to the glory of God. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Further, Philippians also tells us, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that is, live in an honorable way that is consistent with the gospel of Christ. When Christ becomes your greatest treasure, it is transformative. And hence the reason why the book of Philippians has all these many other exhortations of what the honorable life looks like, of what the life of a Christian who seeks to honor the Lord with their lives looks like. And it looks like this. For example, it says that they do all things without grumbling. I might be grumbling about how long this sermon is. You're grumbling. Pursue unity. Rejoice in the Lord or have joy in the Lord. Imitate the life of Paul. Don't be anxious, but pray. Even your thinking life has to look honorable. It's even in a command to think about the things that are honorable to the Lord. It tells us in Philippians. This is what the transformed life looks like. The life of one who prizes Christ above all things. And the thing about the prize and, and, and possessing this prize and valuing this thing, this relationship with Christ above all things is that we must also be in constant pursuit of this prize. Philippians 1.25, the Apostle Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul could not decide if the decision was left up for himself. He could not decide whether it would be better to live for Christ here and now and continue to live or to live with Christ or live for Christ in the afterlife, to go on and depart with you with Christ. Which one? Would he choose? He seems convinced that he will remain for the progress and joy of the church. And in this way, he shows the concern for the church, and that is that he is concerned for the church's progress and, the, and concerned for the church's joy in the Lord. And his concern must be our concern as well. That we must be concerned for our own progress in the faith and the pursuit of the prize as well. Jonathan Edwards once said that the way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill. Though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural tendency and bias of our flesh that tends downward to the earth. The pursuit of the prize takes an intentional effort. And this is what the scriptures teach us about what the Christian life is like. It's not a life of, of being stagnant. It is not a life of being still, but rather it is a life of traveling uphill. That there is no room for complacency. That we must be afraid of allowing ourselves to just coast above the waters and letting the waters, letting the tides and the currents take us wherever they will because we might find ourselves at the shores of destruction. But the Christian life is one about of, that consists of swimming against the current. Right? There's no con cruise control in the Christian life. You put cruise control on, you will crash eventually. We must be in constant pursuit of the kingdom. You've heard me say this before. You might as well put it in my tombstone because I say it so often. But Jonathan Edwards, again, once said that Pursuing the kingdom is not something that unbelievers do, but it is the chief business of the Christian. The 
gospel says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence take it by force. That is, those who pursue the kingdom, they pursue it with all of their might. They're always running after the kingdom because the kingdom is their greatest treasure. The kingdom of heaven was never intended to ease or to indulge the ease of the lazy, but be a place of comfort and rest for those who run hard after it and treasure it with their lives. And in pursuing the kingdom of heaven, progress is the way of pursuit. We must continue to grow and learn and become more like Christ. So I wonder, one helpful question for us to consider is, do I notice a noticeable, do I, is there a noticeable dis- difference in my life today in comparison to last year? Am I growing in the fruits of the Spirit? What have I learned? In what ways has the Lord been working in my life? Because you see, we are in a process of sanctification. And sanctification, yes, it is the Spirit's work, but it is not the Spirit's work alone. And if we wish to continue to make progress, to continue to increase in our joy in the Lord, continue to increase in bearing fruit of the Spirit, then in some measure we have to plan for it. What does your next year look like? Progress for you might be picking up in a particular book that you might find helpful with a particular area in your life. Progress for you might be considering joining a community group to have that fellowship with other believers. Progress for you might be studying the Bible much more in depth. It might be memorizing scripture. It might be perhaps having an accountability partner. Progress just doesn't happen. Progress must be planned for. And those who treasure Christ above all things, they treasure, they they are transformed by that treasure. And they pursue that treasure. And pursuit of the treasure is making progress. As you make progress, you are making much, you're making much harder effort in pursuing the kingdom of heaven, in pursuing the prize that is Jesus Christ. So then, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, and His great power and His great authority reveal His gracious and compassionate character. We see that most vividly in the cross of Jesus Christ. That in the power of God, God rescued his people from his own judgment. God is a righteous God who always cares for his righteous people. And in that relationship, he tests them. He proves their faith, not not to try to get them to doubt him, but in order that they, that is his people, might cast themselves upon the Lord and enhance their trust in him. And that, lastly, the gospel is a transformative treasure for the Christian, that there is nothing that replaces the gospel, that nothing replaces Christ, that nothing is of greater value than having this relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And the more that you treasure this relationship, the more that you desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, growing in his likeness, growing closer to him, abiding in him. So let us consider these things and let us plan for the new year and make efforts in growing in our knowledge of the Lord and growing in the fruits of the Spirit so that come this time next year, we may be able to look back and see how good the Lord has been to us and so that we may be able to see how the Lord has been working in our lives and being able to see this difference, this growth, this growth, this maturation of the fruit in our lives. Lord, we, we thank you because you are our Savior. There is no other God like you. There is no other God besides you. And Lord, we, we want to treasure you as our greatest prize. And Lord, sometimes we are just exhausted and we are tired and life is just hard. But in those moments, help us to look to the gospel to remember your great compassion and great grace. To be reminded that you deal gently with your people and that you will never turn away those who cast themselves upon you. Lord, help us to set our eyes on the prize now and in this coming year that we may run hard after the prize to make it our greatest treasure. We pray that you would strengthen us for the task, that you would help us, give us the grace, and let us be an encouragement to one another, that we may exhort one another to run hard after the prize that is Christ, because we have been possessed by Christ. So we thank you, and we entrust all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray.